Heavenly Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you for your spirit who has brought us together and made us one in you. We thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed to purchase that unity. And not just that we can be one with one another, but that we can know you and love you and trust you and be reconciled to you, our God. And so we pray that for all that happens here today, Lord, that you would be glorified, that you would be treasured in our hearts, that you would be worshipped and honored and pleased with what we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, before you have a seat, if there are empty seats next to you toward the center, if you all can just scoot and be right next up to your neighbor and leave seats closer to the aisle open for people who are late or out in the bleachers and the nosebleeds (laughs) to be able to have a seat among us, that would be great. So if there's some empty seats next to you, please move in closer to the aisle and leave the outer edges open just for the sake of anyone who comes in a little late. All right, y'all may be seated. Well, welcome to Zoe Community Church. If y'all don't know me, my name is James, and if y'all haven't been here before, we don't normally meet here in the gym, all right? It's a little crowded, it's a little different, a little more hectic. Um, Also, uh, we don't usually have family service. We do that about four times a year. It's a special occasion. So the kids are with us here today, except for the youngest of the children, uh, and so it's a blessing to be here with everyone at the church. It is a special day at Zoe, not just because we're in the gym, not just because it's family service, but because there's a bunch of special things that we're about to do right after the sermon. All right, so I'm actually going to speak only about 30 minutes. Uh, I think I can do it. But afterwards, we're going to have a couple testimonies. We're going to have a couple baptisms, which we're excited about. We're inducting new members. We're going to pray over the Jung family as we send them off to Japan. And then we also have a big announcement about a new pastoral hire and some changes there with the church leadership. And so there's a lot of stuff coming up today for you to anticipate after the sermon. But in light of all these things, I wanted to first turn to God's word and let scripture inform our perspective of all these events to try to tie this whole day, this afternoon together. And so if you can, we'll be in Ephesians 4. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And how providential this is. In September, Jesse came back from his sabbatical, and he preached a standalone sermon at the end of Ephesians chapter 3. And at the start of this month, Vin, our elder in training, preached a standalone message at the start of Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. And now we get a standalone message from Ephesians 4, 4 through 4. We're kind of doing this mini-series in Ephesians away from our regular series in 2 Samuel. But just to remind you, Ephesians is structured in two halves, okay? The chapters 1 through 3 are doctrine and theology, right? The gospel. And chapters 4 through 6 are the practical application of it, living in light of these gospel truths. And so the Apostle Paul began writing this practical section at the start of chapter 4 by saying that the foremost thing that should mark our gospel living is unity. Unity in the Spirit. We just sang about it in this song. That in unity, the face of Christ might be clear for all the world to see that comes through the power of the Spirit. God has made us one, and now the church is to live as one. And so now in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, Paul elaborates on what this unity means. Follow along as I read Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of God. Now, if you know our story, seven years ago, we were back in California getting ready to plant this church. 
And we needed a name for the church. And between Jesse, Eric, and myself, we all had our list. We all had our ideas. Um, Zoe wasn't actually any of our first choice. In fact, Zoe wasn't even on any of our lists. And there's a story behind how we came to be called Zoe. But my first choice came from this exact text. Okay, My firm conviction is that what the church is about is that we are marked by a supernatural unity, a single faith, one body with one Lord, serving one God who himself is one, right? And so, of course, what better name than my favorite, One Community Church? All right, you guys are laughing because you know the neighborhood. Long story short, imagine my great pain and sorrow when after Googling, we discovered there was already a One Community Church in the United States, not just in the U.S., but in Texas, not just in Texas, but in Collin County, not just in Collin County, but at the exact place we were hoping to plant the church. And I mean exactly. Our original target was the four-corner intersection of Frisco, McKinney, Plano, and Allen. And guess what church stands exactly at that corner on 121? Yeah, one community church. Anyways, I sadly had to abandon that name. But the biblical convictions still stand. These verses show us the things that unite us together as true believers. Paul gives us seven things, seven ones in these three short verses that are the fundamental components of the corporate Christian walk. These seven unities center us together and make us one true church. And if we're honest, each of these seven ones, each of them could easily be a one-hour-long sermon. But here I only have 25 minutes left. And seven ideas to get through, and you all can do the math, except maybe the younger children here who don't know division yet. I got three and a half minutes for each of the seven, so here we go. We'll break these verses down into three parts by the three verses, the three things the church shares, the same society, the same salvation, and the same sovereign. Three S's. And the first three of the ones are found in verse four. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One body, one spirit, one hope. We call this point the same society. We're all part of the same society, and this point teaches us who we are. Who are we as the church? What is this new community that God has brought us into and put us under him that we belong to forever as the church? Well, a society is just a group of people who exist together in community because of some shared commonality, right? It could be anything. It could be a common geography, like a neighborhood, a common culture, like an ethnic group, a common government, like a country, a common purpose, like a union, a common activity, like a club, a common kinship, like a tribe, or a common belief, like a religion. Well, when it comes to this society, the church body, all of those things are actually true, and more. Right? We're geographically together. We're under the same leadership. We worship together. We do the same things. We believe the same things. We live for the same things. We're even a new family together by the blood of Christ as God's own children. In the church of God, we are to experience an incredibly deep and unique spiritual oneness, deeper than any earthly society knows, because God has made us one body together. We are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit, and we hold fast to the same hope. So we'll look at those three one at a time. First, one body. This is the first one. And if you've read through Ephesians, this is not a new idea in the letter. Paul has mentioned three times already, once in the first three chapters, that the church is a body. 
Most notably, his chapter 2 reference is a big point that God has taken two radically different and mutually exclusive people groups, two different societies, if you will, the Jews and the Gentiles. And so if you have a Venn diagram, the Jews and Gentiles are two completely separate, distinct groups. And God has taken the Christian Jews and the Gentiles, or sorry, the Christian Jews and the Christian Gentiles, and he's melded them together into one. Exactly one, the same body. One new man, Paul calls it. One body, he says, because of the blood of Christ, because of the cross. Both parties are forgiven. Both parties are accepted. Both parties are brought in and drawn near, whether they were originally close or far off. Jesus' blood makes peace that unites two opposing parties into one. Now, that's the kind of unity that was realized in the Ephesian church, And Jesus brings the same unity today. If you look around you, no matter how different our origin stories, our cultures, our backgrounds, our preferences and politics and positions, all the things that currently divide the world around us and formerly would have divided us, those things are nothing compared to the cross of Christ, which is stronger. The blood of Christ, which binds us together, White and minority, male and female, white-collar, blue-collar, millennial and boomer, Texan and Californian, we have all been brought together into this new body. God has taken all those dividing walls of hostility, to to borrow some phrasing from chapter 2, and crumbled them at the foot of the cross. But in joining us as one, He didn't make us all homogenous, all right? He didn't make us all the same. We are still individually parts of one body. And in fact, we see this one body, many members analogy in the rest of Ephesians 4, and also in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Every body part, eyes, ears, hands, feet, each one has distinct abilities and gifts given by God to participate in serving and building up the larger body. So the bottom line is this, God has made us all one in Christ. Though previously divided, we are now together one body in the church, and we, having varying gifts given by God, are now united in one purpose, though we have different gifts, to use them in love, to serve the body, to build it up for the maturity of the church. The next one is the one spirit. There's some overlap here because those gifts we are given are gifts given by the spirit And if you think about the concept of body and spirit, those two ideas go hand in hand, don't they? Even for non-Christians, if you ask like a secular metaphysicist or a philosopher or whatever, they all agree that in order to have a real, true, living human being, you need a body, but not just a body. It needs to be indwelt by a spirit. In fact, in the Bible, James 2.26 states pretty matter-of-factly, a body apart from the spirit is dead. So if the church is a body, what does it need? The church needs a spirit, and indeed, God has given us exactly that, the one spirit, the one Holy Spirit. Without his Holy Spirit, this body would be dead. This society would crumble. In fact, again, in chapter 2, Paul had said that it is the spirit who builds us together into God's dwelling place. In fact, in verse 3 of chapter 4, we saw that the unity that we Christians have been given is the unity of the spirit. The Holy Spirit living in us and working in us unites the society of believers by building up the church, preserving our unity, and strengthening the whole body to full maturity and effectiveness. It's the work of the Spirit. And we, together, 
If we walk by the Spirit, we will bear true spiritual fruit. I think the children in here know this. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And the Holy Spirit, if he is in us, bears this fruit in the body of believers as well. It's also a corporate concept, not just individual, right? A spiritual society should be marked by love for one another. A spiritual society rejoices together. We're at peace with each other. We're patient with one another. You get the idea. The Spirit not only grows this body, he also prepares the body for spiritual battle. Ephesians 6, right? Paul will get into this. That we've been fully equipped, for example, with the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. The Spirit has inspired the Word of God for us, and we as the church must wield the Spirit-inspired Word rightly, interpreting it and understanding it and applying it, living it out, so that we might stand strong in this evil day. And that is a firm conviction here at Zoe, that God's Word must always remain central to this church and its ministry and everything we do. In all these ways and more, the Spirit of God is in us, giving true life and vitality to this body. And we praise God for the unifying, empowering, and preserving work of the Spirit in us. And third, we hold to the same hope. This hope we have binds us together from the moment that we became a believer, the moment we entered into this society. Verse 4 ends saying, you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. You see, the hope that we have is directly tied to our call to salvation. When God called us, it was an invitation to a new and living hope. One hope that the unsaved world does not have. And yet we live in a world that's filled with so many kinds of hope, don't we? People hope in diets and trends and fads. People hope in new technology They hope in leaders, experts, and gurus. People hope in a negative medical test or a favorable diagnosis. People hope in the stock market. They hope in the next election, the next lottery, the next morning, the next rainfall. People hope in their grades, in their job performance, in their boss's approval. People hope in themselves. There's no shortage of hope in the world. But the Bible says those who are separated from Christ Those who are not saved, as we were before, are without hope. We have no hope in the world. The reality is there is no hope in the world apart from God. You see, worldly hope and all these things I mentioned look to the future with uncertainty, merely merely wishing for something to come true later on. But in this new society of God, our hope is different. Yes, we also look to the future, but we do so with certainty, right? Our hope is sure Because the spirit we have is our guarantee. You see, Paul told the Ephesians chapter 1, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And he continues, the hope to which he has called you are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Amen. Our hope is heaven. Our hope is of the resurrection of the dead. Our hope is in eternal life. And this hope is sure because God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, raised his son. And it is that same power that brought Jesus back from the grave that raises us as well. That same spirit is powerfully at work within us, guaranteeing for all believers that the best 
is yet to come. Randy Alcorn says, For unbelievers, this present life is the closest they will come to heaven. But for Christians, it is the closest they will come to hell. The best is yet to come, brothers and sisters. Our Lord will return one day for his bride, the church, to take us home to be with him forever. And that's a promise. That's a guarantee because the Spirit is in us, in this body. After all, we aren't an earthly society with earthly hopes, aren't we? We are a heavenly society. To summarize, our joint hope is an eternity with God. And to that end, we have been given the Holy Spirit as a seal, who has joined us now into this new unified body. One body, one spirit, one hope. These are the marks of the new society that is the church. Now verse 5 has the next three ones. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And these three things characterize our salvation. Okay, that's our second point. We share the same salvation, which shows us how we got this way. How did we enter into this society, into this community? And the answer is, by believing in the same Lord, by being made righteous in the same faith, and by participating in a special sign that Jesus established for his followers, which is baptism. Let's start with one Lord, which must refer to Christ. Right? The Bible is clear that Jesus is Lord. 1 Corinthians 8 says there are many lowercase gods and many lowercase lords, but there is only one God the Father and only one Lord, Jesus Christ. And to be saved, you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. He is the only true Lord. And as the head of the church, he must be our only Lord. If Christ is our Lord, the church can have no other master, no competing authority over us, can't bend to anyone else's will or whims or demands, We cannot serve the Lord and the state if they ever come into conflict. We cannot serve our Lord and the current culture and whatever shifting societal norms or movements demand of us or impose upon us. We cannot claim to be standing firm in the Lord while we are willingly blown about by the winds of change around us. Christ's church must hold fast and can never approve or accept of anything that our Lord hates. Brothers and sisters, understand also that by calling Christ our Lord, we proclaim ourselves to be his slaves. Master, slave. We can't just call him Lord, Lord, and not be his servants. We do his will. We deny ourselves and follow him. We submit to his commands, to his authority. Not just to hear and bear with his teachings, but to actually believe, obey, and follow him, even at great cost. Christians around the world today are arrested, beaten, tortured, and killed for what they preach and what they practice. It's been this way from the beginning. And the same may be true of us one day soon, even in America. And the call to faith is the call to choose this day whom you will serve. Will it be the Lord? You see, if he's truly our Lord and Savior, we must serve him alone because we've trusted him alone. And that leads to the next idea that there's only one faith. Because there's only one saving Lord, there's only one saving faith. That one true faith that we all have in common is the faith that declares who our Lord is and what he has done for us. Namely, Zoe's statement of faith outlines these biblical truths. And you can read it on our website if you want. This is the summary version of it. But we believe that God alone created all things and rules the universe. 
We believe that God alone is perfectly holy and righteous. And he's the standard of goodness and justice. And we believe that we've all transgressed that standard. We've all sinned against a holy God. And the penalty that that sin incurs is the penalty of eternal spiritual death and judgment and wrath. We believe that Jesus is God. And he came to earth as a man in the flesh. We believe that Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life of perfect obedience to the Father and that he died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. We believe that on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, the wrath our sin deserved, and his death paid our full penalty of sins on the cross. But we also believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We believe that he is ascended and that he will return and that we too will rise and be with him forever. And we believe that we could never be saved by our own faithfulness, by our own piety, by our own works or our own effort or our own doing. We are saved only by God's grace alone through faith alone. This is the message of the gospel, the faith that needs to be received and believed and professed, a faith that is centered squarely upon the person and work of Jesus Christ for each of our and all of our salvation. So if you share in this faith, if you've professed this, then for you, there is also one baptism. Now, baptism is a special sign of faith that was given to us by Jesus Christ. He modeled it by his own example when he was baptized at the start of his earthly ministry in Matthew 3. And then at the very end of his earthly ministry in Matthew 28, he commanded it. In the Great Commission, when he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In baptism, we publicly proclaim that we are Christ's disciples. So we have to be clear here. At Zoe, we believe that according to Scripture, as best as we understand it, baptism is reserved for those who already believe in Christ for salvation. That is, baptism is only for Christians because it's supposed to come after saving faith. So we don't believe in infant baptism since babies don't have the capacity to believe or to make that profession of faith. But what we find in the book of Acts, the story of the early church, is example after example of baptism happening immediately after faith. The pattern is that people believe and repent and then get baptized. And you see this over a dozen times. Inner faith and regeneration by the power of the Spirit has already happened within the heart of a believer before he gets baptized. So to be clear, baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. All right? the, the act of baptism itself does not save you. The water is not special or holy, nor does it cleanse or wash away sin. Only the blood of Christ does that. You were already cleansed when you believed. Rather, the act of baptism is an outward, visible, physical expression of what has already taken place in the believer's heart. In other words, the sign or symbol of our one faith in the one Lord is the one baptism. But hold on a minute, right? If baptism doesn't save you and isn't a requirement to be right with God and to get into heaven, then what's the big deal? Why get baptized? Again, looking to the book of Acts we find that when the first converts everywhere come to faith and are believing, the apostles baptize them right on the heels of their coming to faith. And in fact, they're so eager, they even ask in a couple of cases, here's water, why shouldn't I be baptized now? And who can withhold water from baptizing these people since they have received the Holy Spirit? 
right? They ask, who would stop us? Why shouldn't we do it? They ask the opposite question, not why should we do it? Because baptism is a big deal. Because it marks a changed life. It marks a life transformed by the gospel of God. I was just reading an article this week from a church out of Africa, and there was a photo of how they baptize in the middle of the desert. They don't have tubs or baths or lakes or rivers. And so they're pretty industrious. What they do is four men hold up the corners of this heavy-duty tarp or cloth, and that sagging cavity in the middle, like a hammock, they just fill with groundwater for the the person getting baptized to, to sit in. That's how they baptize them. They go through all that trouble in a land without water in the desert because it is a big deal. Even though baptism doesn't save, it's important because it's a public display of your inner faith. And even deeper than that, the act itself is a symbolic expression of union with Christ. This in Romans 6, 3-4, which says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, baptism is a visible testimony that says, I believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on my behalf. That's one reason we practice immersion, actually, physically going into the water and coming out of the water instead of just being sprinkled. Because baptism symbolically represents being buried and raised with Christ. That whoever goes into and out of the waters of baptism demonstrates his personal identification with Christ's death and Christ's resurrection on his behalf. Galatians 3, 26 and 27 ties it all together. Listen for the key words here when Paul says, For in Christ Jesus the Lord, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So Paul has shown us who we are. We're part of the same society. He's shown us how we became this way by receiving the same salvation. And lastly, we worship the same sovereign. The same sovereign, that's our third point, which reminds us whose we are. Verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The seventh and final one is one God. And this is the fundamental theological truth in theology proper. The most important part of the law, Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema declares, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 1 Corinthians 8 says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. You see, God is one, and he reigns over all as supreme. He's also the father of all, which means we belong to him. The scripture reading today that Jeff read for us said, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And what incredible news that the almighty God of the universe, the supreme, all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign over all creation, is also our loving heavenly father who cares for us like adopted orphans, like rescued, wayward sheep. And verse 6 ends with three different prepositional phrases. We don't need to break them down in detail, but yes, God is overall, he's transcendent and supreme. 
Yes, God is through all, empowering everyone, using his people to do his work in the world and in the church. And yes, God is in all, spiritually indwelling us and ever-present with us. But I think in the big picture, Paul stacks up these prepositions to show us that it's just all about God. He rules us, he empowers us, and he indwells us. Why? For his own glory. For his own purposes. That's why we exist. And God himself is one. There's no conflict, no division within him. His will is perfect and it will be accomplished. His purposes will not be thwarted. His throne not usurped. His glory not diminished. This is true in the world and in his church. God is doing his perfect work in and through his people. And so when we look at the church, we should see God's word at work. We should see his pervasive goodness and love and grace working powerfully in us. We should be a body that holds fast in full dependence on him as our loving, good, heavenly father. And we, the church, must keep God at the center of everything we are and everything we do. Because at the end of the day, this is what it's all about. That God is the father of all. He's made us into a new society, united with a common salvation, and under the same sovereign. We are so blessed to be a part of this church together as one. We'll close here. There's one component of our church name that survived every iteration of planning. And it's not church, it is church, but the other one. Whether one community church or life community church or Zoe community church, we never waver from our desire to have community be a part of our name and no one could take that from us. God has redeemed us to be in community with one another, walking together in Christ. And what a blessing it has been these past seven years to gather and grow as like-minded people, united in what truly matters. Together, we are one body, the church, with one Holy Spirit within us, holding fast to one hope, saved by one faith in the one Lord Jesus Christ, demonstrated by the one baptism because of the one God and Father of all. As we continue in our worship service today, with all these special occasions and announcements, I want to pause and begin to think about how some of these truths we've just discussed shape our understanding of the things we practice as a church, all right? This, everything I've said might not be really new to y'all, but think about it today as we enter into the next concluding part of our service. For example, because we share the same faith, we can welcome all these new members and their families because they're saved by the same gospel. We have the same salvation. No matter when they believed, or how far they've come from, or where or how they were baptized even. And as we welcome these families, we are reminded how each of us has made the same commitment already to one another, if we're members of this church. So may our passion be renewed to serve and build up this body in love by using our God-given gifts. Because we share in one body, we're sad to send off one of our dear families to the other side of the world. We're losing literally a body part. But we remember that we share in a larger body, the church universal, God's church invisible, the global body of believers for all of time. And that means we can pray in faith that God has a local church in Japan ready for them, that God has effective and fruitful ministry in store for them, and that God will direct their paths even as they go from here. And we remaining can rejoice in the hope and knowledge that we will one day see the Jungs again because of the Lord.
Because there is one God over all who is sovereign over his church and working through all of his children, we can eagerly welcome a brand new family to Zoe and embrace a new staff member and future elder, Lord willing. Because we know ultimately God is the one working out his perfect will in and through his church. It's not our church. It's his church. He is directing us. Christ is the head. And God has been so abundantly faithful to Zoe. Amen. He's blessed us all along the way. And so we're really excited about this next stage for Zoe, anticipating what God will do and what he has in store. And because we believe in one faith and it's one baptism, we can rejoice together today as Caleb Lyra and Piper Amerson demonstrate their commitment to our Lord in this way. After I pray, I'm going to invite them up one at a time to share their testimonies with us. Now, on behalf of the elders, just so you're aware, uh, I have taught them in the baptism class, and I've personally met with them to clarify their understanding of the gospel and of baptism and their reasons for wanting to be baptized this time around. And so even though we don't believe in infant baptism, as I said before, we're okay with baptizing children so long as, as elders, we feel we can affirm their profession of faith. And we believe this is true for these two young believers. And what a blessing to join them in celebrating their saving faith together. So may God be glorified in them and in us today. Let's pray together. God, you are so good. You are good to us. You are good to your church. We thank you for your faithfulness, first and foremost to yourself, that you are one, that you are in perfect relationship with yourself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you are united and not divided, that your will and your purposes will always come true. We thank you that as this local church, we can be a part of that plan. We pray that you would help us by the power of the Spirit to continue to walk in that way, to be faithful and obedient and submissive to you. You are our Lord and our God. We are your servants. Lord, we pray that you would bless the activities of this afternoon as we go through these various announcements and special things, Lord, that it would just lift our hearts in joy and in worship. For you are such a great God. We thank you for your redemption, your salvation in Jesus Christ, which we never deserved and could never deserve. God, you are indeed good and glorious. And so we give you all praise this day. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.